mother's womb and called me through his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with flesh and blood, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me, but I went away to Arabia and then returned once more to Damascus. So he gets saved, he gets filled with the Spirit in Damascus, immediately begins to preach Christ, but then as we said the last session, here's the Lord, and he goes off to Arabia, which would be pretty much straight east of Damascus. And he just kind of disappears. And it's three years. And now we once again state the iceberg principle of the hidden life in Christ. And I want you to turn, first of all, in your Bible to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. Uh, John the Apostle is the only apostle still living when he writes this. It's about the late 80s A.D., uh, some air had already come into the church. The backdrop for John writing this is a heresy called Gnosticism. And John, he's got a call to go back to foundations. That's why he uses the word, both the gospel and also here, in the beginning. And he really reveals some powerful things that will begin to happen in Paul during this hidden life, and these can happen to you in your hidden life. Here's what John says. What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld in our hands handle concerning the word of life. All right, what was from the beginning? I want you to think in your mind, go back when that's all there was, was God. No angels, no stars, no earth, no planets, no creation, God hadn't commenced creation. You understand, if you look around the universe, everything that you see had a beginning. It was created. The only one not created is God. The Bible reveals that he's Father, Son, and Spirit. What did he do? And he evidently did it for a long time. Well, he had this incredible intimate relationship among himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. What they did is, they beheld one another, they loved one another, they spoke to one another, they heard from one another, and the one overarching word that captures it all is they had fellowship with one another. And this fellowship was primarily marked with this intense, incredible joy. Well then, man is created, Sin happens, Jesus is sent, and he's the Word made flesh. John is saying here, we saw him, we heard him, we touched him, and his life was manifested. And then John goes on to say, he said, verse 2, And the life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim. Verse 3. Now that's really important. That's why your hidden life with Christ is really important. What you see and what you hear privately, you proclaim publicly. If you try to proclaim publicly what you've not yet heard, there's no life, there's no punch, there's no reality. It's the consummate echo in many ways. Just passing on kind of facts without passing on and releasing the person. And so Paul is, is in this intense fellowship with the Godhead. He, he gets caught up in it, really. A revelation begins to really flow. He really begins to hear. He really begins to see. And later on, he will proclaim what he has heard and what he has seen, and the result will be life. A manifestation of God's life. Doesn't matter how it manifests. Could be salvation, could be healing, could be deliverance, could be peace, could be joy. God's life is like a diamond, multifaceted, and it, it comes to us and it impacts us and profoundly ministers to us. John goes on to say, and our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, and these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. Now the word there, complete, means full. 
God wants us full of joy. He wants our joy to increase. That's what's very attractive to the world who is basically dealing with depression, darkness, sorrow, anxiety, fear, uh, unbelief. And so for us to be a people of joy. I went to a church for the first time a year ago, December. I'll be back there this November in Somerset, Wisconsin. Bill Hebes, the pastor, excellent brother, ex-drug addict, hardcore gang fighter and the whole nine yards, marvelously saved, and really he's got this church that's like a diamond in the rough. So anyway, I, I show up, and the thing that struck me, as soon as I walked through the front door, and it was started with greeters, and it was in the whole church, they, these people were filled with joy. They were absolutely filled with joy. Do you have greeters? I mean, make sure you have greeters that got joy. It's kind of a drag if the greeter looks at you and they're depressed. Well, praise God. No, no. They, they were just filled with joy, but it was genuine. That's my point here. It wasn't fakey. It wasn't fakey. It was absolutely genuine. The joy, later on, Paul will share this with his conference. Why is joy so powerful? Is because the joy of the Lord is the source of your strength. Now, He's also going to come into an understanding of the kingdom as he's fellowshipping vertically the Godhead during these three years. And there's three key words. Please write kingdom somewhere next to First John 1. I love this when I do this class because I've never shared this at this point in this class. So I don't know if either you're weird or I'm weird or we're all in this thing together. All right. First John 1, Romans 14, verse 17. We'll mention this verse more than once. There's a kingdom. And that means there's a king, but here's what's in his kingdom. Righteousness, peace, and joy. And when you come into Paul's gospel, the first thing Paul's gospel does is it gets you righteous before God. Next to the word righteousness, write the word accept. When you're righteous, you're actually accepted. That brings you, number two, incredible peace. Wow. And then righteousness and peace begin to catalytically work together to produce and release intense joy. And so John says, I write these things that you may be complete in your joy. Paul writes in Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord, and again I say rejoice. He was pretty much a guy that had a lot of joy. So he's in this fellowship, 1 John 1. Now you see uh, letter B, priestly ministry precedes all other ministry. I want you to write to the left of the margin of the word priestly. There's a threefold call for every believer. But it's always in this order. This is true for you now. Number one is priest. Number two is prophetic. And number three is kingly. That is a threefold call for every believer, not just a few. But always in that order. First, you're a priest, then you're prophetic, and then you're a king. Priest means you just spend a lot of time ministering to God, seeking God. If you do that, you're going to begin to get God's heart. If you get God's heart, you get God's word. If you get God's heart, you then become prophetic. Because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. To be a king, it doesn't mean you got your own little kingdom and a throne where you're sitting. To be a king is to be victorious. What kings do is defeat the enemies of God and expand the kingdom of God. And a believer who's a priest with a deep, intense, hidden life will then go into prophetic, having the word of the Lord, which is the sword of the Spirit, and you will begin to seriously overcome and have victory, and you'll come into a very strong kingly anointing. Now, write this name down, David. We're going to talk a little bit about David in Sunday school tomorrow. 
We're going to look at a tragic mistake David made, but we're going to also look at the good things. David is the only one in the Old Testament, type of Christ, who was priest, prophet, and king. He's a type of Jesus. And David, when he comes into that intense priestly ministry, goes totally prophetic, and then obviously goes totally victorious, culminating with the slaying of Goliath. All right. So Paul goes into this incredible priestly ministry in this private hidden time, and he hears this word, Matthew 3, verse 17. I call this the most important prophecy you will ever hear. Matthew 3, verse 17. What that is, is the baptism of Jesus in water. When he goes through that, heaven parts and heaven speaks. And here's what heaven says. Behold, my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And the Spirit of God descends on Jesus like a dove. You need to hear that word. I need to hear that word. I need to hear that word more than once, frankly. Paul's going to hear this word a lot during this hidden time in his life. Behold my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's not pleased in what he does. Jesus has not yet started public ministry. He's not doing. It's a matter of who he is. This is so foundationally important is that God loves me for who I am, not for what I do. Behold my beloved son. Now that word beloved means the son of my first love. Here's the far out thing. Sometimes it's hard to wrap our head around it, but let your heart enjoy it. God loves you as much as he loves Jesus Christ. You are as righteous in the sight of Father as Jesus is. Why? Because you're hidden in Christ. You're covered with his righteousness. You have total access to his throne. Behold my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. If we try to minister without hearing this prophecy, ministry tends to be counterproductive. It tends to be rooted in trying to earn acceptance rather than already having it. That's the essence of religion. Religion tells you to perform in order to be loved. The gospel says you are first loved, therefore you are released then to love. Behold the beauty of the Lord. Behold my beloved Son in whom I am all pleased. I I particularly, uh, when I do prophetic seminars and try to take people through on how to speak for God, Uh, um, if this isn't a foundational prophecy in your own spirit, everything gets a bit warped and askewed. And this word is meant to release incredible acceptance, healing, unconditional embrace. My Father really loves me. How much? As much as He loves Jesus. And the accusations of the enemy come, the accusations of religion come, the accusations of my own self come, the accusations of other believers can come, but foundationally my Father loves me. Now, so Paul, here's Matthew 3, verse 17, and I want to... I want to also say, uh, Jesus, the example of private and public, just write this scripture down, I don't have time to go into it, but John chapter 20, John chapter 20, verse 20, here's what Jesus says, as the Father sent me, so I send you. That is a pattern of sending that is eternal. This is what's happening to Paul. How, one time I'm reading that verse and God opened up a whole word. How did the Father send the Son? That would be pretty important to, find, to discover. Here's how He did it. Totally by the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ was totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. He was totally dependent from His conception to His ascension. And everything in between, He was totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. Power of God was present for Him to perform healing. The Spirit raised Him from the dead. The Spirit anointed him. The Spirit gave him revelation. The Spirit helped him in the wilderness. The Spirit did everything. He was totally dependent on the Holy Spirit. So was the early church. That's why I find it so ironic that there's been such a war against the Holy Spirit in our generation because obviously hell is nervous and hell panics if the Holy Spirit's really allowed to do what he can only do 
then you got a church that's dangerous, right? So Jesus, so I came to this real simple com- conclusion. Wow. Jesus needs the Holy Spirit from conception to ascension. I think I need the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Unless you're stronger than Jesus and you got to figure it out, go for it. And so Paul, John 20, then you see the very uh, next thing there, uh, Roman numeral 2. Paul develops his relationship with the Holy Spirit. Would you write these scriptures down? Zechariah 4, verse 6. Paul would be very, very familiar with that prophecy. It was the word of the Lord that Zechariah got for Zerubbabel, who was rebuilding the temple, and it's a how word. Zerubbabel, it's not about your might, it's not about your power, it's about the Holy Spirit. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. So Paul then begins to develop and cultivate this incredible relationship with the Holy Spirit. Church, hear me, please. The Holy Spirit's the only one authorized on earth to conduct heaven's business on earth. That's it. There is no other heavenly agenda. We try. I mean, it's the Chinese apostle surveying and going around to the major churches. If I named them, you'd all recognize them across America. Gets on the plane in California to fly back to Chan, and they asked what his assessment was of the American scene. He said, I'm amazed at what you people do without the Holy Spirit. Your soulish ingenuity, your might and power is unparalleled. I'm not sure how much life is actually being released, but you guys really look good. And sound good. Quite professional, frankly. And quite whatever. Not by might, not by power, but by my spirit. So Paul begins this intense relationship with the Holy Spirit. Would you also write these two scriptures down? Luke 24, verse 49, and Matthew 28. There's two verbs there. Two verbs. Matthew 28 says, go. Go. Go where? Into all the world, make disciples. Paul will do this. Luke twenty four forty nine. the word is wait. Well, wait until when? Well, until he comes. <laughs> if you try to go without waiting, you're going to bring a knife to a gunfight. Somebody say, that's not real smart. Okay? And so, Jesus says in Luke 24, you got to wait until he comes. Here's what I've discovered in my walk of 40 plus years. I sometimes have gone when I should be waiting, and I'm waiting when I should be going. I hate when that happens, don't you? (laughs) Kind of just a little bit opposite. Paul's now learning how to wait on God. you got to understand, this guy's type A. This guy's a doer. This guy maybe has one of the strongest souls in the history of the world. Intellectually, razor sharp. Emotionally, incredibly strong. His will, unbending. You see all that in his persecution of the church. You know what God's going to do to that strong soul? He's going to shatter it. He's going to break it. He's going to melt it. And Humpty Dumpty (laughs) sat on a wall, and Humpty Dumpty had a great fall. And all the king's horses and all the Christian counselors (laughs) couldn't put Humpty back together again. Because it wasn't, he's not meant to be put back together again. Because you cannot live and walk and move in spirit while your soul remains intact. Some of you were saved a number of years after your birth. You know what that means? Your soul overdeveloped. It's too strong. I, I sat down with a leader not too long ago. Borderline tears. I said, your soul's in the way. You're too gifted. God has to break it. Didn't want to hear it. But what are you going to do? And so, where was I? Where's my notes? I lost my notes. Go wait. Go wait. Go wait. All right, then we go down to A, Psalm 27, verse 4. Please turn there. This, along with Zechariah 4, verse 6, would be a major, major key. Psalm 27, verse 4, I am asking you to memorize this verse. You'd be doing yourself well to memorize some of the verses around this verse. 
This was one of the most famous psalms in Paul's Bible. This psalm exploded in Paul's spirit during these hidden years. It's written by David. The first three verses are a testimony of David. Where David says, I'm surrounded by enemies who are trying to take me out. Later on, Paul will be totally surrounded by enemies. We'll we'll show that very clearly. David says, I'm totally surrounded by my enemies, but in spite of all this, I do not fear, even though war arise against me, in spite of this, I shall be confident. Now, if David's here reading those first three verses, here's what our question is. Well, David, that's marvelous. How'd you get to that place? How did that happen? What's that all about? Well, that's verse four. One thing have I desired. That will I seek after. Church, brothers and sisters, your Christian life is totally related to your heart. Here's what the devil's going to constantly try to do. He's going to try to divide your heart. Because if he divides your heart, he's got you. And so, one thing have I desired. Now, that word desire is a very, very strong word. I personally believe that this is one of the desires that come into a person who's truly born again. One thing have I desired, that will I seek after. Please make note of the word seek. You want to pray this as a grace uh, impact in your life. God, would you increase my seeking hunger? Increase my seeking thirst. God loves to be sought after. God loves to be pursued. Uh, to seek the Lord means you really want the Lord. You're really after the Lord's heart. And so one thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell. Now the key word there is dwell, and this means lifestyle. This means, this is where you live. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord. Now the house there that David is speaking about is the tabernacle of David. It's the house of worship. It's the house of beholding. It's the house of ministering to the Lord with ongoing intense worship. So privately, what I do most of the time during the week, I take the mornings and I'm in that tabernacle. And, and I'm just trying to seek God. I pray and sing in the Spirit a lot. I just try to behold, you know, just get alone in whatever. doesn't matter when you do it, by the way. I don't care when you do it. But that's your desire. That's your heart. One thing have I desired, that will I seek after. And yet, as you travel and you relate with believers, you'll hear things like this. You know, I'm so busy. And then in that busyness and activity, what tends to get shrinking is actually the most important lifeline you have, which is vertical tapping in to the Lord. And then we wonder, well, grace seems to be drying up. Anointing seems to be drying up. Uh, the voice seems to be a bit more distant. Presence doesn't seem to be quite as strong as it used to be. Well, see, all that is just reflections and manifestations of, of, of a, kind of a violation of Psalm 27, verse 4. So David says, one thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of worship, beholding his beauty to become his holiness. And then look at the verse right after verse 5. Back to victory. I'm in that tent of worship. I'm in that tent of worship. And my head is lifted up above my enemies around me. I offer in his tent of worship sacrifices with shouts of joy. I sing, yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. For about three years, Paul's shouting, he's weeping, he's filled with joy, he's beholding the Lord, he continually surrenders his heart. He says, oh, one thing have I desired, that will I seek after, that I may know him now, and behold him and his beauty and his holiness. And later on, when I'm surrounded by persecution and 
people that want to kill me, and when there's a contract on my life taken out, and the assassinated, the Sakadi, the, the, the assassinated hit squad, is going to try to stab me to death for 20 years, I'm surrounded by that. I'm in that tent of protection. And in that tent is joy. Wow. How's your tent doing? How's your seeking doing? Hey, I should have a mirror in front of me. There's times in my life when I slip and get distracted. Spin wheels. And so Paul, he's got Psalm 27, 4 really, really being worked in. You see there the word worship. We've already mentioned Psalm 25, 14. Well, I haven't mentioned that. You can look at that later. Right next to Psalm 25, verse 14. Please write this down again. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18. That's beholding the Lord. And then would you also write Psalm 73, verse 17. And write this word, sanctuary. Sanctuary. I love Psalm 73. You know what it is? This guy's complaining to God. I don't get it, Lord. Those rascals are not walking with you and they're prosperous and life is good and everything's cool and I'm in the point of despair. What's the use of following God, serving the Lord? And I was really in this dilemma until, verse 17, I came into the sanctuary of worship and then I saw their end. Worship will always bring you to a proper perspective of life. Worship will always in you magnify God and minimize your enemy. It's very telescopic worship. Behold the beauty, the grandeur, the awesomeness of God. And so you also see under worship, friend of the king. Friend of the king. Let me just explain where I'm coming from so when you read that, you'll understand. A prophetic guy went to bed one night and had a dream. And in the dream, he went to heaven, and he was being escorted by an angel, and he was seeing heaven. And then all of a sudden, very famous five-fold leaders were dying and going to heaven. First was an apostle, second a prophet, third a pastor, teacher, and evangelist. They were all well-known. Be guys like Billy Graham or who, who knows what. And everyone that died, Luke, you know, the Lord's, Luke is the Lord. Look at, turn around here, Luke. And, and the Lord's sitting on his throne, okay? And then the prophet would die and go to heaven, and the Lord would stand up and welcome him home, and they had a nice handshake. Good to see you. Nice to have you home. And then the Lord would sit down. And this happened with the apostle. The pro- It was nice. He was glad he was home. Well done. You know, praise the Lord. Ministry. And then all of a sudden, in the dream, a nameless, faceless guy showed up. And when the Lord sees him, you got to do this, Luke. All right. When the Lord sees him, he leaps up. And he's filled with joy and a real happy expression on his face. And the Lord runs to the guy and they both run to each other. And now I can do this because Luke is a little bit lighter than Mike. And, and, and they whirl, thank you, brother Luke, and they whirl in a dance and in an embrace. And the guy who's observing this whole scene is shocked. Who is that guy? Oh, that's the Lord's friend. For about 15 years. Some may say, ah, brother, you're prophetic. Some have said, you're pathetic. <laughs> All that's pretty much not an issue. There was such a time, oh, don't you want to have a big name? Well known? John says, I just want to be a voice. Not going to go there. And for about the last 10 to 15 years, the heart cry in my life has centered around, God, I just want to be your friend. Nothing else matters. Let's hang out. Sometimes I'll get, I, got, I have a family room behind my garage, off the living room. That's, that's where I hang out. Sit in a chair. You know, God, in fact, I'll say, God, you don't have to speak. Nice if you do, but... 
You don't have to perform, God. Let's just hang out. See, a lot of us relate to God when he performs according to our expectations, but when he lets you down according to your expectations, you know what, Matt? You get mad at God, get frustrated with the Lord, and then you stop seeking and stop spending time. No, no. I'm not going to put God on a performance basis any more than he hasn't put you on a performance basis to establish relationship and friendship, right? I just want to be a friend. I keep losing my notes. Come on, Mindy, keep track of my notes here. Being before doing. We've already touched on that, number three. I have number four that you don't have. Please add number four, Ephesians 5, verse 18. And Acts 19, verse 2. Just, again, the whole absolute crucial importance of being filled with the Spirit of God. Being filled with the Spirit of God. And then you see what I have there, the importance of the gift of tongues. That was a very, very big deal to Paul. I don't back off on that for an instant. Ephesians 5.18 and Acts 19, verse 2. We'll talk a little bit more about those actually later. But we've got to get going because I, I, I have a place to go to before we have lunch. Why don't you pray that we get there? <laughs> <laughs> All right. And then uh, the importance of the gift of tongues. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 18. This was a major, major emphasis for Paul. Why? Of the nine gifts of the Spirit, only tongues edifies you. The other gifts are for the body. Tongues has a unique... Don't try to figure it out with your mind. Just agree with the Word. Would you write this scripture down? Mark 16, verse 17, and to the end of Mark, verse 20. Jesus is there giving a description of a believer in Him. He who believes in Me and has been baptized, cast out de- demons, speak with new tongues, lay hands on the sick, they will be healed. If any serpent thing... Happens Now, he's not talking about snake handlers in West Virginia. He's talking about a follower of Jesus Christ. <coughs> you can go into any poisonous atmosphere in society. It will not infect you. You will, in fact, impact it. You're a believer and a follower of Jesus. And signs and wonders will accompany those who preach my word. Speaking in tongues. Now, that's laid in by Jesus Christ, not Paul. Now, you'll hear some silly, foolish, uh, trying to eliminate Mark 16, 9 to 20, saying, well, that's not in the original manuscript. 435 original manuscripts, only two didn't have Mark 16, 9 to 20. I'm not going to mess with the Word of God. I'm going to bend my knee to the Word of God. And Jesus says, he who believes in me will speak with tongues, period. If you don't, you're allowed to, you're not forced to. And it's just really important. That's why you have throughout the book of Acts, every time the Spirit of God is poured out, there is a release of the Spirit in the realm of speaking. Tongues, prophesying, and so forth. Okay, then let's go in our Bibles now to Acts, back to Acts chapter 9. It's now three years later. Paul comes back to Damascus in verse 23, and the battle is joined. He's still a lightning rod. He's still somewhat a person of controversy. And so it says in verse uh, 23, Acts, Acts 9, When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted. I want you to make note of the word there, plot. This is going to be an ongoing trial for Paul for the next 20 years. They're constantly plotting to kill him. He's that much of a Benedict Arnold. He's that much of a betrayer. They want to take him out. They absolutely want to take him out. So there's plots, and and it says here, but their plot became known to Saul. Verse 24, very important. Later on, he will write a verse like this in Corinthians. I'm not ignorant of the schemes of the devil. See, when you got a really intense, private, seeking life with God, when you're really vertically tight with the Lord, you are privy to inside revelation and you are going to understand plots of the enemy, traps of the enemy, snares of the enemy. You have a spiritual sensitivity where you're not ignorant. The reason many Christians get picked off, the reason many Christians get caught in the snares of sin 
is because they're lacking a sensitivity and they're kind of blind to what the enemy's trying to do. But when you have this really solid vertical relationship with the Lord and you're hearing his voice and you know his presence and, and you're beholding his holiness, you, so whenever the enemy would try to plot against Paul, Paul would always find out about it. He wasn't caught off guard. See, I don't want to be caught off guard. He wasn't caught off guard. And so, now, this is cat and mouse stuff here. And so they were searching the gates day and night so that they might put him to death. This is not an evangelistic outreach getting him back into Judaism. They want to take him out. So his disciples took him by night and let him down through an opening in the wall, lowering him in a large basket. Church, you can't make it up. He's just lowered down in a basket, and he's saved, and he goes off now for the first time to Jerusalem. First visit as a believer. Look at verse 26. When he had come to Jerusalem, he was trying to associate with his disciples, and they were all afraid, and they didn't believe he was a Christian. Person number two is now brought into Paul's life. His name is Barnabas. Does anybody remember the name of Barnabas, what it means? Encourager. And Paul's somewhat alone. You know, he's tight with God, but he'd like to be flowing with the church, but it's not happening. And there's old brother encouragement. Now, Paul is brought by Barnabas and introduced to Peter. He meets Peter for the first time. Paul and Barnabas begin a lifelong relationship of intense friendship. They're always going to kind of encourage one another. And so he spends, according to the testimony in Galatians, here's what Paul does now. In Jerusalem, this first visit, he spends 15 days with Peter. If that's not in your notes, just add that in there. 15 days with Peter. And he kind of hangs out with Peter. Um, Yeah, time with Peter. 15 days. You get that in Galatians 1, verse 18. And he just kind of asked Peter questions. You know, what was it like to sleep with Jesus? What was it like to eat with Jesus? Uh, what did he look like? And, you know, in, in his kind of human deal, Paul saw the ascended Christ. And so anyway, he just had this time with Peter. Peter, no doubt, hears from Paul. Paul's three-year revelation. He's probably hearing a lot about grace. He's probably hearing a lot about new covenant. And in fact, some of the things that Peter's beginning to hear from Paul, it's a head-scratcher. Later on, Peter writes in one of his epistles, some of the things Paul says are kind of hard to understand. All right, now, in the Jerusalem church, here's what I want you to get out of this. Paul was kind of a lightning rod. He never had a great relationship, even with the Jerusalem church, for his entire apostolic career, actually. Uh, Because there were guys in the Jerusalem church, even though saved, still liked the law. And they still followed the law. And so Paul was kind of a offensive guy to him because they knew his previous testimony my word if anybody was devoted to the law it was paul and now we're listening to this message he's preaching concerning grace and it's a bit of a head scratcher peter wasn't the only one that wrestled with paul's gospel and so he's there for 15 days uh he's there speaking out boldly in verse 28 he's talking with hellenistic jews There it is again now in the end of verse 29. They try to put him to death. Wherever he's going, he's kind of a lightning rod. So finally the church, they're embracing him somewhat because of Barnabas' encouraging ministry. But they're saying to themselves, what do we do with this guy? You know, we're trying to evangelize Jerusalem. And he's such, he's such a lightning rod. What do we do? And so... You, you, you follow the narrative here in verse 30. But when the brethren learned of it, they brought him down to Caesarea and they sent him away to Tarsus. Uh-oh. I think tongue-in-cheek the Holy Spirit writes the next verse. After Paul is sent away, what does it say? And the church enjoyed peace. <laughs> Thank God. He's on the ship. He's on the ship. All right. Now, verse 31, by the way, in terms of the early church, this is something you want to embrace. The church enjoyed peace. They were being built up and going on in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit. It continued to increase. Do you want to increase? All right. This is a whole other message. I'm just going to give it to you quick. Mike, you can take it and run with it. If you're going to really increase as a church, you've got to have two things, fear of God and the love of God. Fear of God and the love of God. It's not either or. 
If you're just into the fear of God, you're going to get so narrow and hard that people can't relate to that at all. If you go into the love of God without the fear of God, you will get loosey-goosey, satanic sympathy, overemphasis on mercy, and there's a reason why Bible-believing, even spirit-filled believers now believe in ultimate reconciliation. You know what that is? Universalism. Everybody will be saved eventually. How'd they get there? Well, they got there because they emphasized love to the neglect of the fear of the Lord. So you got to have that wonderful balance. So Paul is sent off to Tarsus. Now you see in the bottom of page 9, how long is he going to be there? Eight years. Personally, here's what I believe. Possibly the most painful years of his life. The years that are covered are approximately 37 to 45 A.D. In Acts 10 and 11, it's all about Peter, what's happening with Cornelius, Gentiles, Acts 10, 11, Paul's in Tarsus. Now we recognize the prophet is not welcome in his hometown. He's, number one, going to be rejected by his family. His father will slam the door in his face unless he had become saved, but we don't think that happened. Possibly a wife blew him away. Maybe she's dead. We don't know. But what we read last night in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is five times I received from the Jews the synagogue discipline of being whipped. 39 lashes each time. Here's what most believe. Three of those happened, at least. Maybe four, but for sure three, during this eight-year period. This would be the synagogue he grew up in as a child. This would be maybe seniors who taught him as a young toddler. Now whipping the tar out of him, back-bloodied, Rejected, discouraged, Paul's sufferings. If you go to, if you go to page 10, top of page 10, what God is doing here is obviously breaking the soul in order to release the spirit. At times, Paul is wrestling with a certain discouragement. Hey, God, remember that ministry word? Apostle, hey, that's a set one, Lord, and I'm here bogged down to the Gentiles, not happening. And families rejecting, religions rejecting, and then it happened. Wow. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's turn there quickly. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. And the reason this is so important is that This can happen, I believe, and God wants it to happen in our lives. Maybe not to the degree of intensity, but there's a principle here I want you to see. He says in verse 2, chapter 12, I know a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body, not sure, or out of the body, God knows such a man was caught up to the third heaven. And Paul had an experience in the third heaven where he saw what no man has ever seen. He heard what no man has ever heard. He had such a download of full revelation concerning the gospel of Jesus Christ, a revelation profoundly of Jesus Christ. In fact, the revelation was so strong to to protect him from pride, he's given what the Bible calls a thorn in the flesh. Now, what was that? It wasn't sickness. The thorn in the flesh was a demon resident in a religious heart who dogged Paul his entire apostolic life, and he would try to distort, he would try to mess with and pollute Paul's message. Write this down somewhere in this part of your notes. The greatest burden for Paul was not physical, it was his gospel tampered with, changed or altered, because he knew only his gospel and his 
understanding the gospel is gets you righteous and takes you to heaven. You could beat Paul. You could reject Paul relationally. You could even preach the gospel with bad motives. He would be okay with it. But to change his message, to pollute the gospel of grace, he would literally go ballistic. You begin to understand now some of the background of Galatians. And so this thorn in the flesh, three times God, Paul begged God to remove this thorn, and God said, son, your revelation is too vast, your gifting too great. I have allowed this thorn to keep you humble, keep you broken, keep you low, keep you seeking. Trust me, trust me, trust me. Three times. Well, we now come to Acts chapter 11, while Paul is in Tarsus, hidden, in many ways forgotten, and let me just say this, in all of our lives, sometimes we are on the back burner while others are on the front burner. And it's all about timing, and it's all about wisdom, and it's all about God ultimately and His sovereignty. So in Acts 11, verse 19, I actually said 22, I meant verse 19. You have, so then those who were scattered make their way up to this place called Antioch. And you'll find in your notes there, Roman numeral 5, that the church in Antioch is birthed and established. And you see what I have there, I have a phrase called the work for the worker. Uh... God is shaping and fashioning the vessel Paul, his worker, and now he sovereignly births a work, and at the right time, the work and the worker are going to come together. God has a ministry for you. God has a calling on your life. Uh, in the right time, God brings these together. When I came up out of seminary in 72, freshly married, I went to New Testament Church at Eden Prairie, had the call of God, submitted to the church. I was there for a while, started leading worship, started doing it. And I remember one time, Robert Ewing, the apostles, coming to New Testament Church, are going to set in new elders. I says, well, to my wife, all right, I got the call of God, this is it, I'm going to be an elder. Finally, they're getting it. <laughs> it's time, it's time, it's time. And so... They have a weekend seeking God, Robert, you know, Fred Herzog's house, two new elders. McCracken was one of the elders, and Willie Christensen, now there's going to be two more. Jim and I, at that time, we were best of friends. Our kids were born, and we we did, Carolyn and April are three weeks apart. We hung out weekly. So I I said, this is it. Jim was probably there kind of a first, yeah, you know, he he couldn't say, yeah, that's it, the Lord or anything, but, you know, just being nice, being trying to friend. So anyway, they're powwowing. It's like the Pope being selected, right? Is it black smoke, white smoke coming out of the chimney? Who knows? So they meet Sunday night, the big announcement. So I'm sitting there full of anticipation, expectation. This is it. Time for the worker to come into the work. New elder, Michael Knapp. Well, there's still another one coming. <laughs> so I'm sitting here with my wife, and my wife, intuitively discerning, knows something's up. Not dare to breathe a word of discouragement or unbelief. Uh, elder number two, Raleigh Newman. <laughs> Make a long story short, within a month I was out of there, going to go, I was going to leave, go back to Chicago, and here's where the devil really did a slick thing. I started com- communing with a friend of mine who was a covenant preacher. I came out of Covenant Seminary in North Park in Chicago. He says, Chuck, they didn't want you to leave seminary. You were kind of one of their young up-and-coming, hey, they had your eyes on you, and we got a guy back there at North Park. He's willing to fund your return to Chicago. He will fund your school. He will get you totally situated as a family. You got an open door. And so I share this with my wife. So, well, surely the door's closed here. I'm not going to be an elder at New Testament Church. They're not getting it. And here's this open door, and my wife Kitty doesn't have peace. What do you mean you don't have peace? Don't you hate that when they don't? 
I met with Fred. He said, well, you can go. I release you, but I don't think it's the Lord. Well, you didn't hear God about the elder. How can you hear God here? I don't receive that word. And finally, I bent the knee, wept my heart out, wept my guts out, and I said, all right, I'll keep selling carpet. I don't know about this ministry. I don't know about this. And in the meantime, shortly after, a church got birthed in Cloquet, Minnesota. And the work was birthed. And then June of 1975, I was set in as the first pastor, and the worker and the work came together. You know when they built the temple? All the stones were fashioned off-site. You probably have a lot of people that are going to be part of this work. They're not even here yet. You've got future workers flowing out of this work. They're not even on site yet. They're getting hammered out there in the quarry. They're getting broken down. And and trust me, you'd rather have them get counseling out there, get broken out there rather than come in here. And then when they come back in here, they're going to fit better. And so this incredible work gets established. Let's pick it up. Barnabas hears and catches wind because Antioch is blowing fuses in Jerusalem. Antioch, number one, is multiracial. Jerusalem tended to be just Jews only. Antioch's multiracial, it's multicultural. There were wealthy people in Antioch was a fabulous city, uh, second only to Rome in many ways. A lot of wealthy people in the church, a lot of poor people, and a lot of in-between. And so multiracial, multicultural, Antioch was exploding in evangelism, and the grace of God is manifesting, and so the Jerusalem church, which still considered itself headquarters, said, Barnabas, get your butt up there and check this new church out that we're catching wind of. It's 350 miles away, so he walks about 40 days, comes into Antioch, and Barnabas, it says in verse 23, in your Bible, he witnesses... Help me if I got the right verse. He witnesses the grace of God. All right, now I'm reading this one day. Here's what you want to become more and more and more. Victory Church. Antioch is a pattern. Now here's the first thing I want you to hear my heart on. The first experience of church life for Paul in depth and reality was Antioch. And he was blown away. He was so impacted that wherever he goes, starting new churches, he's going to release and impart what he experienced in Antioch. It was that powerful. It's captured with that little phrase, and he witnessed the grace of God. Now, I'm reading this one day. Now, you got to trust me here. I know that sounds like a used car salesman, but hang in there. you got to trust me. Because this is how I get words. This is how I get revelation. I read scriptures, but hey, in order to read scripture, you got to have the spirit of truth on you, right? And so I'm reading this scripture. I can feel, I know the spirit of God's on me, and all of a sudden my heart maybe skips a beat, and something's quickened, and, and have you ever had the verse leap off the page? All right, that's the word becoming very real to you for that moment, for that day, at that hour. And I'm looking, and he witnessed the grace of God. Witness means he saw. I says, oh, Lord, what did he see? What did he see that so got Barnabas fired up? And God downloaded to me in rapid fire five, three, sixteen scriptures. <coughs> they should be in your notes. This is what he witnessed. Five, by the way, is the number of grace. And, and, and the first thing he saw was, John 3.16 in operation, the love of God, the love of the Father. There was such a love in that church, such an accepting atmosphere, such an embracing atmosphere. They really did love one another. He saw the love of God. And for God so loved the world that he gave the most precious thing God the Father had, which was his son. In other words, Antioch was characterized by great giving. Later on, Paul will cue in, uh, in the poverty of Christ, you are now in riches, 
And out of the abundance of their poverty, the Macedonian church, because of the grace of God operating in their life, they gave beyond their means. This is the widow giving more than everybody combined. God does math different than we do. And she puts in that penny. And from God's perspective, it was more, that's the grace of God at work. The grace of God at work. So there was incredible love, incredible giving. Number two, Luke 3.16, the Holy Spirit was absolutely at the center of that church in terms of operation. Jesus is the center in terms of worship. The Holy Spirit is the center in terms of operation. And Luke 3.16 is Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Please write the word down, fire. Whenever you see the word fire, in the good sense, it means passion. Passion. Over the years, I like to get fired up when I speak, but I remember one time... A guy came up to me in my first church. He says, you know, brother, I don't agree with some of what you say, but at least I appreciate the fact that you come across with some degree of sincerity. <laughs> Believe it. All right. Be passionate. It was a, a church. Doesn't that sound more exciting to join that kind of church that's got some passion? Zeal for the Lord. That's reflected in worship. Should be reflected in when you greet visitors. Not that you're weird. You're passionate. Your heart is alive. Uh, we're not going to church service. That is a funeral service with soft music, candles, and incense. Give me a break. What's that all about? No, no, no. The fire of God's in the house. There's passion in the house. There's passion in worship. There's passion in preaching. There's passion in uh, ministry. People pray for one another with tears flowing down their heart. Filled with the compassion of Jesus Christ. Church, miracles happen because of the love of God and the compassion in your heart. The Bible says of Jesus, because of his uh, passion or compassion, he did miracles to alleviate human suffering. Be a church filled with passion. Come on. You go to those Viking games and you watch the false worship going on there and they get all excited for a deadbeat team going nowhere. What's that all about? You had 10 seconds of excitement when the guy runs a touchdown for a, for a kickoff and then after that is depression for two and a half hours. That's a false worship. We rebuke you in the name of Jesus. <laughs> Praise God. Zeal also speaks of holiness, purity, purity, pure hearts, pure hearts, sincere hearts. They were baptized with the Spirit of God and with fire. Obviously, the gifts of the Spirit were exploding, all nine. A lot of miracles taking place, prophesying going on. Barnabas is really getting excited. Number three, Acts three sixteen. That's in the context of the healing of the man crippled from birth. Peter and John ministering to the guy in the gate, beautiful. In other words, in Antioch, there are miracles taking place. There are healings taking place. Let's believe for that. I know sometimes it sounds idealistic. And I know we all have probably a litany of disappointments. We have believed and it didn't happen. I don't have answers any more than you have answers. But what am I going to do? I'm going to keep believing. What's the alternative? I remember one time I said to a guy, I said, well, we're not into that, uh, we're not into that faith stuff. He said, well, what are you into? Unbelief? <laughs> now, I understand there's extremes and everything, but we're basically saved by faith. Hello. We are saved by faith. We live by faith. We walk by faith. So there were miracles taking place. Also in verse 20 of Acts 3 is that the presence of God was exploding. Victory. You want to be a house of presence. You want to be a house of passion. You want to be a house of power. You want to be a house of purity. And you want to be a house of proclamation. Now where'd that go? That'll preach, Mike. Hallelujah. <laughs> proclamation. Pro- proclaiming. All right. The point is the presence of God is unique. We're talking here now manifest presence. God's always with you, covenant-wise. But he loves to manifest his presence. Why? Because it brings refreshing like nothing else. And it brings encouragement. You want to be a house filled with the fragrance of the presence. 
How's that happen, brother? Well, John 12. She broke a very costly, expensive bottle of perfume. And in the breaking, it released a fragrance. I have gone to churches and I have smelled the Lord. I'm not talking weird here. It is cool. The fragrance of life. The fragrance of God. Here's what Paul says, by the way. I am a fragrance of Christ. Wherever I go. Paul, you got a book out on that? Is there a seminar I can go to? No, I'm sorry, son. Five times. Three times shipwrecked. It's costly. Costly. 